It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Politics on the Couch. It's been a while. Thanks for waiting. I'm sure you've had plenty to keep you busy. I'm Raphael Baer, by the way. Now, I want you to imagine you're in a room with a young man who is devoted to violence in pursuit of religious ideology, a devotee of jihad, a terrorist sympathiser. What do you do? I'm going to guess that leaving the room would be quite high on the list of priorities. I'm also going to guess you probably wouldn't try to persuade this violent extremist to have a brain scan so you can better understand the neuroscience that lies behind his radicalism. But luckily for us, that's exactly what Nafis Hamid does. He's a cognitive scientist based at University College London, specialising in radicalisation. What causes it? What makes people turn to political violence? What does it do to their brains? And that involves some pretty intense fieldwork. Because to find out how radicalised minds work, you need to get the radicals to answer questions, to take surveys. You need to put them in an fMRI scanner. Now, I've wanted to speak to Nafis ever since I heard about his fascinating research. And the conversation does not disappoint. I learned a lot about the social and psychological conditions that turn people towards violence. How those conditions occur in a whole range of cultures. What are the patterns of thinking that connect Middle Eastern jihadis to the Donald Trump-supporting insurgents who stormed the capital last year? And what can we do to turn people back once they've started walking down the path of the dark side? You also learns about the intriguing role played by that part of your brain that is able to resist an extra portion of tiramisu at the end of a meal. Or any delicious but highly calorific dessert, by the way. It doesn't just have to be tiramisu. Now, we've got into all sorts of fascinating stuff in this conversation. Nafisa is a really engaging, thoughtful, insightful guest. So let's get on with it. I started by asking him about that whole business of persuading terrorist sympathisers to be part of his research in the first place. And whether it wasn't a little bit, hmm, what's the word? dangerous? It's a weird profession because you're part scientist, but you also have to be very sort of cognizant of your own physical safety and even the safety of the actual participants themselves. Essentially, you're sort of recruiting them into research. Now, if I imagine the sort of people you're talking about here, people committed to jihadi ideology in Morocco, they get approached by someone saying, I'm doing a social science project. I imagine they're pretty suspicious about that. You know, they, they're going to have some pretty serious questions to ask about whether that's really what you're doing. And, and I can imagine them being pretty jumpy about that. So yeah, there's a couple of things you can do to, to help with that situation. So one is if you have good fixers, that, that helps. Because basically, if there's someone who already has respect in the community who's facilitating the introduction, then the trust that they have for that person basically gets transposed onto you. The other way is just to be really transparent about everything you're doing, give them your real name, say you can Google me, you can see the research that I'm doing. And what I found was that actually, especially when I emphasize the neuroscience part of things, that really piqued their interest. They're just like anybody else. Uh, they're curious about how their own minds work as well. 
And so, you know, some of them would mistake me as like a medical doctor and they'd ask me, you know, I have this, I have this headache sometimes when I wake up in the morning, can you help me with that? And I had to explain to them, no, I'm not that kind of doctor. I can't, I can't diagnose any sort of mental issues that you're having. Some of them were very prideful. They're like, oh yes, you have to scan my brain. You're going to see how different it is, how unique and how special it is. Um, they really thought I was going to find something sexy about their brain. That's absolutely fascinating that, that, that they... Because that was going to be my next question following on from that, in the sense that they self-identify as distinct or are like the idea that that might be the case. Uh, do, do, do they self-identify as extreme uh, or is it more that they just think they have some special insight? You know, I, I could imagine also someone like that thinking, well, well, no, I've seen the world as it is and I'm right. And you're the one that's got the world all wrong. So why are you thinking there's something weird about my brain? You've got the one with the weird brain. Exactly. So they wouldn't use the word extreme, but they do love the word radical. Extreme sort of has a negative connotation. Radical to them, to most of the people I've interviewed, has a positive connotation. They're all about even the expression radicalization, some of them, because they're like, yeah, you're right. I am a radical. I'm, I'm radically going to change the system. I'm a revolutionary. So it's a, it's a very positive connotation. But, you know, it, it varies from person to person. I mean, some people have that attitude, other people don't. Sometimes you have to get the friends of an individual to convince that person to do the brain scan. These people don't see themselves as on the wrong side of history, right? They see themselves as on the right side of history, and the history will vindicate them, time will vindicate them. And so the idea that there's someone out there who's trying to do real, proper, objective scientific research on their psychology, on who they are, is really appealing. To many of them. That's so interesting, isn't it? Did you get the impression ever that there was a sense that this might even be a kind of a proselytizing moment, the sense that you know, you're, you're, something will come across and that even you're not, be, you know, even you, the researcher, are not beyond the pale, that you might get some insight or, or was that not really part of the calculation? In the end, they probably saw anything that'll humanize them, anything that'll show that they're basically not crazy, would ultimately serve their interests. The reality is they feel like Nobody is really objective in this space. They don't quite trust journalists very much because they think they're going to take their words out of context. So surprisingly enough, you know, for all their religious extremism and sort of backwards thinking, if you want to call it that, they still have this respect for science, just like most people do. They, they see it as this objective endeavor to, to get at the truth of, of human nature. That's very important, actually, isn't it? Because there is this kind of crude uh, characterization of the jihadi doctrine that somehow presents it as a sort of throwback to the Middle Ages and somehow rejecting modernity. But actually, you know, in, there are all sorts of uh, examples of that, that really not being the case. But there is still you know, the foundations of science being kind of enlightenment rationalism that would seem to be at one remove from a worldview that is drawn, it takes entirely from Quranic scripture. But but they don't see, there's no sort of tension between those two things. Most came to light recently with the, with the coronavirus, where you had in the West, even people on the left, people kind of in the yogi and spiritual community who started coming up with all sorts of conspiracy theories about the coronavirus, where it came from, these vaccines that are just Bill Gates' way of putting chips into your body and so forth. And it depends on which jihadist sort of propaganda you were looking at, but a lot of them were following the science quite clearly, and they were actually, you know, heeding the warnings and advice of the World Health Organization, and telling their members to be careful and to, you know, self-isolate and so forth. They don't know what their opinions are on the vaccines themselves. Very interesting. I want to kind of get back to this question of how analogous different types of, of sort of radical thinking and ideation are across different cultural contexts, but let's just stick for a second with that thing of the, the, the jihadis, just because you did mention the need to be aware of physically being in danger or putting your projects, your colleagues or other people in, in, in danger. Has there ever been a point where actually it crossed the line and you thought, well, well hang on a second, what, what am I doing here with these people? These are actually really dangerous people. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a moment even during the uh, the neuroscience research itself, right at the very beginning, where I was still learning the ropes. I was I had not yet completely figured out how to do you know field work in a safe way, and I was in a town outside of Barcelona, and I knew that there was this guy who was kind of extremist. I had seen some of his his YouTube videos. I got in contact with him, and I ended up inside his house, which is his apartment actually, which is. A big mistake you know you always want to meet people outside and we were sitting in his kitchen talking and he had a couple of his buddies who showed up midway through the conversation and they were sitting in the room next door and at one moment this guy is talking to me and it's, it's all pretty it's all going pretty well and then 
as he starts getting really riled up and saying, you know, why should we trust anybody? Why should we trust the West? Why should I even trust you? He says, he goes, you're, you're an American. Why should I trust? Why should I even let you out, out of my apartment? And I realized things were going really, we're, we're about to turn south pretty quickly. And I was able to calm him down. I was like, listen, because, you know, you're, <laughs> I kind of offended him a little bit, but I think it sort of worked. I said, look, I've seen your YouTube channel. It's it's not getting that many hits, okay? If, if I interview you and do research on you, it'll probably, people will probably understand your thinking and your psychology at least a little bit better than, than, than what <laughs> you're doing. And he even seemed to kind of find that funny and, and laughed a little bit. And then we continued the conversation. And at one moment, he, he got up and went to the other room where the other two guys were sitting and he starts speaking in Arabic. Now, I don't speak Arabic. I know some words here and there. I speak Urdu and a couple other languages, but I could pick up uh, the word munafik. Um, munafik meaning, it can mean hypocrite, but it also can just mean sort of like a, a fake Muslim, basically, an imposter of a Muslim. And I could feel that he was directing that term towards me. And uh, if you believe in the jihadist ideology, if you're a munafik, you know, you deserve to be killed, basically. And that's when I realized, now this is going to become a three-on-one situation. And I luckily was able i had the time to just kind of crack open the window in 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 the kitchen and slip out and it was just one story above the ground so i there was a little uh, there was a little supermarket kind of thing underneath me that was able to break my fall a little bit as i as i fell one story and then i just ran to the local train station and got the heck out of there that's quite a story and you didn't at this moment think maybe i will go and research uh kind of radical football fans and put them in an mri scanner because that's a bit safer i mean it's impressive that you, you stuck with the project there's something to be said about that i mean i was also i think i was like 29 years old at the time 29 30 years old so i was closer in age to the very people that I was studying. I think the average age of a lot of foreign fighters was like somewhere in the mid twenties. And I do think there's something about being a younger man that uh, you seek out some sort of adventure. You know, you kind of want to be a little bit out, out in the danger zone. There is, and that's a big cornerstone of our research, this idea that people don't just want security and comfort, that they actually want to sacrifice for something that they think is important. That's a strong human driver that I think in a lot of our economic systems and our social policies, we, we we miss out on. We look at people as rational actors who are trying to maximize sort of positive feelings or optimize well-being in some way. But actually, we, we do want to sacrifice. So we have an expression that we use called devoted actors. And that's the lens through which we look at civil rights activists, uh, LGBTQ activists, uh, people who are fighting on the, uh, working on the environmentalist movement, people who are people who are followers of Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr. These are all people who are willing to sacrifice in some important way, whether it was getting beaten bloody, thrown in jail, risking their own lives or willing to take other people's lives. They're all people who are willing to sacrifice for a greater cause. They're all devoted actors. And ISIS and Al-Qaeda is no different in that regard. I want to come on to that, but I'm fascinated also by this point that there is a certain thrill of danger and excitement. It is also intrinsic to the condition of being young and probably particularly being a young man. I mean, I think about my own experience uh, as a foreign correspondent in in Russia and taking risks and doing things and getting into situations with Russian gangsters that there's no way I would want my own children to do and would do now. And I wonder what is the relationship perhaps between those two things, that there is a sense of devoted actorhood that becomes more intense because of the, the generational condition, the youth basically of the people who you're talking about. There could be a biological component to it. You know, when you're younger, you have a little bit more testosterone. But I actually think it has, it's a little bit more social than that. When you're young, you really you don't have a family yet, basically. You don't really have responsibilities or commitments to anyone. So there isn't really a way in which you can become a devoted actor in your own domestic life. I mean, there. I mean, unless you're taking care of your family, your, your your parents, or something. Most young people sort of have their hands free. And they want to still do something. They, they have this devotional desire that maybe later on gets transferred to being a, a father, a mother, taking care of children, running a business, having employees, and so forth. When you're younger, you don't really have those responsibilities yet, but you still have that same impetus. You still have that same desire to want to devote yourself to something that's not just about your own 
moment-to-moment pleasure in life. And so that gets then transposed onto more sort of uh, broader social aims and goals. And plus the, the culture valorizes it as well. You know, the young man going off to war to, to fight for his country or, or so forth. So there's a whole cultural milieu of TV shows and movies and books and so forth that create this archetype that young men are particularly raised with, this hero's journey that they're supposed to go off on. So it's, a, it's part biological, you know, part psychological and part social. Right, and that raises this really interesting question of when the devoted actor, the, the value system that is animating them is kind of broadly aligned with the cultural value system that they've been raised in, all the sort of compass points pointing in the same direction, presumably you can be radical with your beliefs, but without necessarily then crossing over into hostile to the rest of society or prepared to commit acts of violence. And I, I wonder what needs to be the conditions, do you think, where the devoted actor feels they need to reject whatever they've come from, their family, their social environment, uh, and dedicate themselves in sort of exclusively to a cause. So that seems to be a different kind of order of radicalization. So if you feel like you're part of society, mainstream society, you feel like you belong to mainstream society, you'll probably select from one of the multiple options that are there in front of you. If you're a left-wing person, you'll say, okay, I'm part of left-wing mainstream society. What are the causes that are considered from which I can gain some sort of esteem or respected by by, by my in-group. It might be becoming an environmentalist, a feminist, etc. If you're more on the right wing, you may want to go, if you're in, in the US and you're more a part of the Christian right, you may want to go do some missionary work of some sort. And these are a bit stereotypical examples I'm giving, but nonetheless, you, you, you get the point where as if you're a member of society and you feel marginalized, you feel socially excluded, by the mainstream, you're probably not going to be very attracted to wanting to become a devoted actor of that society that's rejecting you. And you've written about this idea that you call identity fusion, which is the point at which someone becomes uh, so attached to a group that they're in, a peer group, or or it could be a a combat unit in a war or or equivalent situation, their propensity for self-sacrifice or to sacrifice themselves or, or others it is enhanced because actually their, ident- their whole identity has somehow become bonded with that group. And is there a sort of correlation between that uh, and the sort of the repulsion, the push factor away from the rest of society for, you know, because they, as you just described, they don't necessarily have that sense of, of belonging in the wider environment? Yeah, so I think people basically have multiple identities that they're carrying around with them all the time. You know, we're a a mother, a father, a son, a member of our religious uh, community or ethnic group and so forth. And for the most part, we may have multiple weak identities or maybe one or two strong identities. But when people feel rejected from one of those identities, then they're probably going to double down on the identity that 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 presents itself as antagonistic towards the very group that just excluded you. So again, if you're a young Muslim youth growing up in a, in Molenbeek, for example, in Brussels, where I did a lot of field work, you feel rejected by Western society. Well, there's a, there are groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda that's basically saying we told you that they were going to reject you. We're here fighting for you. Come join us. You're already you already share an identity with us in the sense that you're Muslim and we we claim to be Muslim as well. Um, and it enhances the attraction of that movement in, in the face of that social exclusion. And then you probably have a couple of friends who are also kind of being exposed to the same environment, the same ideology. And then you guys start spending more time together, watching propaganda videos, kind of co-radicalizing each other. It's a very similar process of what you see of any young people doing, which is uh, peer pressure and the way you sort of ratchet things up amongst each other, you know, who's going to be the first person to uh, do, do, do drugs, who's going to be the first person to rob a, <laughs> rob a store or something. It's the same sort of cajoling kind of effort. Who's going to be the first person to venture to Syria? Who's going to be the first person to, to make contact with an Al-Qaeda recruiter or something? Right. Yeah. So exactly. So you get this sense both in the digital sphere in particular, but obviously, as you just described in the real world as well, of once you have a a group uh, who are committed to the same sort of 
devotional idea. They bid each other up, and presumably there is, uh, alongside that, a fear of of losing respect, a fear of exclusion. If you're the one that goes, hey, guys, you know what? I think we might have gone a bit too far here. That sounds a bit scary. I'm going to go off home. Um, and and But the other dimension to that, like, presumably there has to be some other push factor away from, say, some, you know, some a family environment. I'm thinking about, the, again, the example of your the sort of Brussels jihadi in the making, who, as I understand it, they're not just thinking, you know, Belgian society, secular Western Belgian society despises me and has rejected me, but they're also susceptible to the idea that my own parents have become bad Muslims. You know, they're not really doing it properly. Uh, and that's a very much outside of the religious context, that's quite a typical kind of first, second generation immigrant thing as well, isn't it? The feeling of, well, my parents, they don't really get my life because they came from the old country and they hang out with their old friends. They don't really understand what it's like for me, my generation in this environment. Yeah. So so we talk about in our research and, and in other people's research, this idea of credible messengers. If you're going to try to change someone from one moral community to another moral community, and by that, I just mean if you're going to take someone from being on the left wing politically to the right wing, if you're going to change someone from being a mainstream Christian to a mainstream Muslim, anytime you're asking someone to change their moral community on, on any dimension, even from one nonviolent group to another nonviolent group, you usually need a credible messenger, uh, an, an actual person who you're going to be interacting with, who has to have two very important qualities. You have to first see that person as being trustworthy, which means you basically see them as benevolent. You, you see that that person's incentives align with your own. They don't have any other ulterior motive. They're not getting some sort of commission. They're not being paid to come and convince you of something. They have no other interest in your well-being. And then the second thing is they have to be seen as authoritative. They have to not only know more than you do on this particular topic, they have to probably know more than anybody else that you know on this particular topic. And so that's what gives that person that credibility to start to persuade you and move you out of that group. So when people have, when they come in contact with these recruiters, yeah, sometimes they they already have a low opinion of their parents' religiosity. They they know they don't know a lot, but they usually see their parents as basically being benevolent. They, they assume that their mother or their father or whatever, when they're telling their young child not to go to Syria, when I've interviewed these foreign fighters, they'll say, yeah, I, I never doubted my parents' benevolence or my friend's benevolence who's told me not to go. But I also just knew that they had no authority on this subject. They just didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about the religion. They didn't know about what was going on in Syria. And in many cases, the person that who was recruiting them was currently in Syria. And it may have even been someone that they grew up with, someone that they have a, a relationship with previously, who's talking to them on Skype or FaceTime or whatever, and is saying, listen, I'm here. Don't believe what you're seeing on TV. That's all propaganda. And these people already have an initial you know, skepticism about mainstream media anyways. They don't trust it. They think it's Islamophobic to begin with. So when that person over there tells them it's all lies, it sort of, it, 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 it jives with what they already presume to be true about the mainstream media. So then that person has so much more authority than anybody around them. And then that's why that person can convince them to, to leave their home and to go fight somewhere else. I presume also then there's an, element of having access to special knowledge that you know you look at your parents and this is again quite a common teenage thing is to look at your parents and think they don't get it you know i'm part of you know, i've got my own insight into the way things are it's almost something quite narcissistic about it that you've got access to the secret um uh, and 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 that in a way becomes you know ties in with this this thing you've talked about i think of, of the sort of the sacred values that there's something that that you know that other people don't and that there's a there's a privileged element to that and if you're in an environment growing up in a society where you feel basically the mainstream of the society thinks you're worthless and or doesn't have any interest in you um you get a tremendous amount of self-esteem from thinking actually i really understand what's going on here i i've got the the secret i know what i know the, the actual truth well i think a lot of that also comes from modernity too um, in, in the past, you know, if you were the, the, the child of a blacksmith, you sort of knew what your role in society was going to be. You were going to become the next town blacksmith. And there was esteem and respect accorded to you for that role that you served in society. Part of what happens, especially in Western countries and liberal democratic Western countries, is 
the fact that people are kind of born without that predetermined role, which is considered a good thing. It's the idea is that you can kind of become anybody you want to be. Um, but of course, that leads to a lot of anxiety as well, because it's almost the paradox of choice. You have so many choices, you don't really know what to do. You feel like you have you have a rolelessness in society. And of course, we also know it's a bit of a myth that you can become anything you want to become, because uh, if you're born in certain poorer neighborhoods and so forth, you don't, you just don't see examples of that around you. You know that there are uh, social structural sort of systemic factors that are going to hold you back, whether it's in the form of racism or classism or so forth. You know, you didn't do as well in school, therefore you won't be able to get into a good university. Uh, you won't be able to, you know, pursue some of the more uh, respected and, and high paying jobs that society has to offer you. So not only now are you roleless, the kinds of roles that that are on offer, the ones that are salient that you're actually seeing are ones that are not respected by society. You could go further and say, I suppose, that in that environment in the society where there is no predetermined role and you make your own way, and in theory it's a meritocracy, and as you say, in practice, there are all sorts of cultural and social and economic barriers to that, uh, the burden of not achieving a great thing is entirely on you. You failed, essentially. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, again, for in terms of sustaining self-esteem and having a, a functioning ego where you think it's okay, I'm not a complete loser, uh, you need to find something that's an available point of, of success and achievement. And interestingly, I was just reading the other day about someone who got involved in organized crime in the UK, a young British guy whose stepfather led him into being a gangster. Uh, essentially. And he described exactly this, that when he was very young, he thought, you know, like a lot of people, I'll be an astronaut or I'll make lots of money or I'll be really successful. Became clear that wasn't going to happen. But being a, you know, going into armed robbery was just available to him. Uh, and so very quickly, his he reset his moral compass so that being an armed robber was the good thing to be. And being one of the sheep out there being the ordinary civilians who don't go around committing crimes, they were the losers. And so it's interesting how it doesn't, I, what, this is really what gets to the heart of what I wanted to ask you about really is that sort of uh, resetting of a moral compass and then the radicalization within that framework, it seems to me can potentially attach itself more or less to any value or any culture if other conditions are met. Well, I just, I just want to clarify something. So with with the, the, the people who I met who came from a petty criminal background and, and even went in and out of prison, who went and joined various jihadist groups, uh, most of them told me that even while they were part of this criminal milieu, they were ashamed of, of, of what they were doing. They knew that what they were doing was not respected by their parents. It's not why their parents came to this country. There was always this sense of, of, of shame around what they're doing, that this was, a, this was a disgrace to their family. And so they had this desire for a redemption sitting within them. And it was, it's that, that's what those extremist groups were able to exploit. This sense of awareness that while you may pretend like you're very proud of being a criminal and going in and out of jail and so forth, we know you're actually secretly very ashamed of it. And so therefore, and 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 you don't need to be ashamed of it because this is this, this is now the recruiter kind of talking here, saying you don't need to be ashamed of it. It's society that put you in this role because it's completely set up against you. And so now we're gonna offer you another role, which is to be a revolutionary and to fight back against the system that put you in this very bottom tier role in society to begin with. And oftentimes what I say is that radicalization is, is, is a way of having a total identity shift. It allows people to press reset on the video game of life and to come back as a better character. It gives them a right. whole new, it gives them a whole new persona, a whole new role, from from loser uh, to uh, to basically being a potentially historical figure, a revolutionary. So, so crudely speaking, there is this kind of soft, moldable clay of of potential antagonistic energy, as it were, a kind of you know crudely speaking, call, call that the, the kind of pseudo criminal uh, possibility. But when you get the right sort of doctrinal ideological mold, you can then shape it into something then qualitatively different. You turn it into, you give it that sacred mission, and then it becomes something qualitatively different. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the beginning, that criminality, maybe what it's doing is it's it's making you feel more and more excluded from the mainstream society. It's engendering strong feelings of 
not only anti-establishment sentiments, but an almost violent anti-establishment sentiment towards police, towards government, towards mainstream media, and so forth. And then an extremist group can come and, and harness that that energy into just, base, uh, which is otherwise just kind of this diffuse sort of anger and outrage, but it doesn't have a narrative yet. It doesn't have an yeah. actual value system and structure. It's not part of a movement. And then once you put that nice narrative on it, now you have not only these strong sacred values that you can believe in, you believe that all this anger and violence is being harnessed towards these sacred ideals, which transcends your actions from just being that of a criminal to now being something much more profound. But you also have now a collective, a brotherhood and a sisterhood of people who are doing this with you. So now you also feel like you're part of something, you belong to some 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 greater movement structure, and you also feel some degree of protection because you're you're part of that bigger crew and group. It's another reason why people join gangs is because underneath it they, they feel scared and vulnerable, whether they're in prison or whether they're out on the street. When you join a gang, you feel sort of protected uh, by by a larger group, and so even though they actually are putting themselves their, their lives in danger they're seeing their fellow friends put their lives in danger right alongside with them. And that gives them a sense of a, a collective purpose. Now that will use that word transcendent, which seems to me really important because ultimately there is going to be a difference, I think, somewhere between, you know, for example, the gangster who feels they're part of the brotherhood and they'll take risks for their fellow gang members. And they'll have that kind of identity fusion thing where, you know, you'll, you'll put yourself in danger because you are so bonded with the group. But there's a whole separate threshold then, which is martyrdom, the idea that you will literally destroy yourself, you know, as a suicide bomber or, and it, but it's not exclusive to jihad. I mean, you know, there are, you have had suicide bombings in, uh, by terrorist organizations that weren't in, in any way connected to Islamist ideology or even Anders Breivik probably knew at the end of the day that you know, his life was going to end and he was a far right jihadi essentially as I understand it, although he wouldn't obviously call himself that. So what is the the character the nature of that threshold is that what the sort of sacred element does it gives you the ability to to devote to be such a devoted actor that you will actually the, transcend even the fear of your own mortality yeah so so we did a couple you know uh, neuroscience studies to kind of really understand and unpack exactly what's going on with these sacred values and and we, we did two separate experiments one was with a kind of younger early stage radicalization population and we we we, we ran them through an experiment where we had half of them play a video game where they were playing with three other Spanish, ostensibly Spanish players. And in, in, the, in the control condition, they felt included in the game. And then in the experimental condition, they felt excluded um, in the game because the three Spanish players just basically started playing amongst themselves and, and didn't play with the Moroccan player, a Moroccan origin player, I should say. So this is sort of throwing a ball around and you pass and then you basically, the, 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 the Spanish uh, players, um, do that very annoying thing that we all remember from the playground of not passing. Exactly, yeah, and it seems like a very silly uh, little experiment, but it's actually been this 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 experimental manipulation has been used in dozens, perhaps even in hundreds of studies by this point around the world on on a variety of issues, and it actually has an incredibly powerful effect. We were almost scared of using it because of how strong the the effect size actually is. Yeah, I can believe it. Just thinking about it, I remember how how you do you feel very excluded. It is visceral. That that sense that hang on this you're not playing the game and 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 it touches animates that sense of of fairness which is the sort of justice bit of your brain i imagine is very aggravated by that well yeah so that's what we wanted to see so right after they play that game we, we put them in the um fmri scanner it's like you know anyone who's gotten an injury maybe did an mri at one point if you think about uh, mri is like a photograph fmri is like a film it's many photographs so you can see at the level of the brain, you can see how the blood is actually moving, blood oxygenation level in the brain. And then you can see what parts of the brain are, you can infer what parts of the brain are active during a particular task. So we put them into the into the scanner and they ha we have them look at various values that are 
either sacred or non-sacred to them from which which we ascertained from from previous psychometric measures so it could have been stuff like you know believing in strict sharia for all of muslim lands believing in a borderless caliphate uh, supporting armed jihad talking about palestinian right of return it could be a variety of issues that are some way related to the kinds of things that jihadists talk about and they could then evaluate on a scale of one to seven how willing they were to fight and die uh, for each of these values and what we found was that participants who were socially excluded, when they were processing their non-sacred values, parts of the brain that previously only came online for sacred values started to activate for non-sacred values even. And they increased their willingness to fight and die for their non-sacred values to approach levels previously only seen for their sacred values. So in other words, we're seeing non we're seeing the process by which non-sacred values start to become more like sacred values. Right. So the conditions of social alienation meant that the as it were the already most radicalized portion of your cognition which attached to as it were the core belief mission kind of colonizes the less radical bits of of your worldview and draws it in more to sort of colors it more the way that you think about uh, the most radical bit. So is that is that fair? Exactly. And this, this is really worrying because if you want to persuade or negotiate someone, usually the best thing to do is to first talk about their non-sacred values. Again, this is not just with jihadists, this is with any group, because those are the values that people are somewhat open to talking about and, and debating and thinking about and so forth. But as soon as they start becoming into the sacred, va- uh, sa- sacred value category, what we know from, from previous research is this is when people will get really offended if you try to persuade or, or, or try to adjust these values in any way, because now it's become much more closer to their sense of identity, and it may even lead to a backfire effect where they may want to socially distance themselves from you, not even talk to you, cut you out of their life entirely if you try to touch their sacred values in some way. So what we're seeing here is a person who is becoming less and less reachable, if you will, by people outside the extremist group, essentially. And so this is presumably why if you're in the business of recruiting to extremism, uh, you want to animate that sense of alienation you say to people you know you put you, you as we were saying earlier you, you really reinforce this sense of you know your parents they're wrong they're the wrong kind of muslim or if you're in the gang you say you know those other friends you're hanging out with your school friends they're all nerds you know forget them because what you want is to animate to to facilitate exactly that process by which as it were the ho- you get whole brain radicalization as opposed to sort of partial from ways that they'll that they'll do that, um, they'll do it directly through one-on-one contact with an individual whom they're grooming, and they'll you know yeah they'll try to get them to see their friends, their family, their community through the lens of social exclusion. But the actual terrorist attacks themselves aim to do that as well. And ISIS talked about it explicitly in a well-known article called uh, Extinguishing the Gray Zone, where they basically said the point of carrying out these soft target terrorist attacks is that it'll lead to a backlash in policy. They were basically implicitly saying that we want the right wing to rise up. We want Islamophobic rhetoric and the media. We want Muslims all over the world to feel persecuted, to feel like there's special laws now that are being applied only to them. So that way it can amplify that that feeling that uh, you are not truly a member of our society. You are somehow a second-class citizen. You trigger the, 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 the policy backlash, you stoke the polarization, which then forces the choice at, you know, probably at a subconscious level to some extent of loyalty uh, and therefore makes the sacred value the salient one in the cognition of the person who, who you know, people who are, who are likely to, to be useful to you as assets, as it were. Exactly. Exactly. That's the goal. In your reading of this, so I'm fascinated by this, is a... a a tipping point, a kind of a point of no return, or is it there just this ongoing spectrum and you can't necessarily say uh, at this point someone's just fully immersed? I wouldn't say there's there's a tipping point, but I would say the signs to look for is how many social ties that person still has into non-extremist networks. Um, once that person, which their entire reference group and all their peers and their loved ones and everything are just other members of whatever extremist group they're in, 
at that point, you're going to have a really hard time pulling that person out. In my experience, uh, the only way someone like that gets pulled out of a group is usually because they were then persecuted by that very group in some way. They were mistreated. Let's say they went to Syria and like ISIS raped their wife or something. They have to have something jarring like that happening for them to go, okay, hang on, I need I need to get away from even these people. And then they'll look for an exit strategy. Right, exactly. So the, the, the idea of, of disillusionment which should, in theory, be a very powerful uh, way of bringing people back when, as it were, they see the truth about the character or the nature of the movement. It's quite a lot to ask to sort of to wait for that to happen. I mean, do you get a sense, traditionally, that also comes with age, and going back to what we were saying earlier about uh, young people being susceptible to certain behaviours, is there evidence of people just kind of growing out of, of their radicalised state? Do they, do they start to regrow a more nuanced set of social contacts or, or do you really have to intervene to do that? Sometimes when people get older, they may decide that they just have other priorities because being part of this extremist group uh, can take up a lot of your energy. For example, members of Al-Mahajaroon here in the UK, they have to spend a lot of their time in Al-Mahajaroon activities. And at some point, they want to start a family, they need to work more hours, they need to make sure that their kids have enough you know, money that they can actually give their kids a good life and so forth, they may just slowly, you know, become less and less involved in the activities of the group. That can mean that they are now getting more and more embedded in other social networks. Oftentimes, they're not talking about politics of those other networks. They can, they can just be co-workers and so forth. But again, at a psychological level, what's happening here is that they are now expanding their identity to not just the extremist group. Now, because they have co-workers and neighbors and, and, and you know, the parents of, of the friends of their children who are not part of the same religion, maybe, or not part of the same, not part of the same interpretation of their religion, all of a sudden their, their identity is now expanding to include these other people. And therefore, they now have new social ties. And at that moment, there can be interventions or whatever that may be able to more actively try to pull the person out of the ideology. Right. And it suggests that there is then at that point an investment in, for want of a better word, a kind of a secular future that's available in the current world, which can compete with the idea of having the ideal future in the next world. You know, so because this is why I'm endlessly fascinated by the idea of martyrdom, which exists across all sorts of cultures, uh, but has been so effectively weaponized as a, as a status uh, in the jihadi ideology, are you able to see at a level of, of brain activity a sort of a pinnacle of radicalization where you are willing to extinguish your own existence on this earth in order to to sort of fuse entirely with the sacred value? Uh, yeah, we have some preliminary evidence uh, from from the second study that we ran, which was with supporters of Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is a jihadist group based in Pakistan, and they are associated with Al Qaeda. They fight mostly on the Kashmiri issue, and we they were much more radicalized, obviously, than the than the first participants. And when we were looking at their brain in the scanner, and they were evaluating a willingness to fight and die for their sacred values, as well as their non-sacred values. The first thing that we see when they're processing their sacred values is there's an area of the brain called the frontoparietal network, which is uh, involved in, you could say, executive functions, so self-control, deliberation, deliberative reasoning, self-reflection, and so forth. This part of the brain deactivates for them when they're processing their sacred values. You could say colloquially that that part of the brain is offline at that moment. In that frontoparietal network, there's a specific part of the brain called the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which usually works in tandem with another part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And the DLP, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is, again, deliberative reasoning, self-reflection. And the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is associated with subjective values, sort of like, what do I want to do? What do I feel like doing? What what, what do I desire? And in, in most of our lives, these two parts of the brain work in tandem with each other. So 
For example, uh, if you're out in a restaurant and the waiter brings you a menu for dessert and you see a nice tiramisu on, on the menu, you may think, wow, I, I really want that. That looks really tasty. Well, that would be your ventromedial prefrontal cortex. It's your subjective value saying, I want that. Now, then you may stop and go, well, actually, that's a lot of calories. I just worked out today. I'm going to work out tomorrow. Uh, I'm trying to lose weight. That sort of extra deliberation and thought would be associated with the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And these two parts of the brain fire in tandem and, and they work and they activate. And sometimes one or the other wins out. You know, Maybe maybe the deliberative reasoning will, will win out or maybe just the, the desire itself will win out. Now, what we found is that with these participants, when they had low willingness to fight and die, uh, their brain was working normally. You had these two parts of the brain working in tandem when making a decision. However, when they moved up the scale towards martyrdom, when they were when they were at the very top, when they were willing to kill themselves and kill others, when they were willing to, to martyr themselves, what you saw was a, a disconnect, so to speak, between these two parts of the brain. And as I said before, these are mostly sacred values. There was an actual deactivation of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So essentially what you have is that I want part of the brain, that subjective value, the part that wants the tiramisu. That part of the brain is basically running the show at this moment. It sounds a lot like addicted behavior. You know, I think of people who, you know, when if you're a smoker and you know there's something you shouldn't do, but at that precise moment where your craving for the substance is so intense that not only do you, does the sort of the rational judgment of this is really bad for me, not, not, is it not strong enough? That voice isn't loud enough, as it were, in your head, but also you can find very elaborate, rationalized ways of saying, no, actually, this is the right thing I should do. You know, well, I've been the whole week without smoking. So the way I can prove successfully that I've given up is by just having one. And then that'll show how brilliantly I've given up. I mean, all the tricks you, I wonder how analogous that is, you know, is it just a metaphor? Is there actually something similar that these people are in a physiological way addicted to their radicalism? Uh, I don't know if it would be addicted because addicted means that you have some sort of, you know, stimuli response that you have no control over. I mean, this this is more voluntary than that. These are people who are surrounded by a community of people that have completely valorized this behavior. If anything, it's what they're trying to actively train their brain into is to get to the point where at a moment of decision of martyrdom, that they're not having doubts, that they're not having, that they're not deliberating or self-reflecting, that they can just at that moment walk into a crowded arena and blow themselves up. I mean, that that, that doesn't always happen, but that's at least the, the the fantasy towards which they're working towards, that they want to be that person. So you could say everything they're doing is an active attempt to try to get their neural circuitry to to work in this way. Right. So you align the the, the brain chemistry, the circuitry. Uh... So, so you have essentially you can achieve a level of automation towards the goal at the point at which the other parts of your brain would was might sort of talk you down from from that moment. Sure, but there, but the, what's important is that despite having this brain chemistry and our, our participants included, there are a lot of little things in in the situational circumstances that can actually change this up. And so we we actually found an intervention that we employed in the in that very experiment that, that I was just talking about with the Lashkari Taiba supporters, where in the second part of the study we had them passively look at their values again and, and just see what they rated in terms of their willingness to fight and die for each value. But this time they could press a button and they could see what the the average community, the, the average response of the community was to this same willingness to fight and die for this issue. Now, these were not other supporters of Lashkari Taiba. These are just other Pakistani people from their from their neighborhood and from their community. And they believed that this was authentic data because they knew we were out there doing surveys and so forth. So they knew that we had this data. But in reality, we actually made up the data to, to create a, an experiment. So half the time, what they saw was that their community basically aligned with their own willingness to fight and die. So if they said seven out of seven, I'm willing to murder myself, the community said seven out of seven. But then the other half of the time, the community had something lower than them. So maybe they said seven out of seven on an issue and the community said right, four So even quite, seven. sorry, so even quite radicalized people, very radicalized people, there is still a residual need or interest in 
calibrating yourself to a notional peer group somewhere. It's people who, who, with whom you might compare yourself and say, well, I, I, you know, you want to achieve some sort of equilibrium with what the rest of a wider group of people think. I mean, that's I find that actually both reassuring and a little bit surprising in the light of what we were discussing earlier. There, there was two results that came out. So uh, after they see that uh, the response of the peers, they then reevaluate their own willingness to fight and die. And then they come out of the scanner and we, we do a bunch of uh, post-scan studies. What we found is we had asked them how they felt when their peer group their, 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 their community members didn't align with their willingness to fight and die. And they showed moral outrage. They said they were contemptful, they were angry, they were disgusted. Nonetheless, when they reevaluated their willingness to fight and die, they conformed. They conformed to the, to the social norms, to the peers' average response. And not only that, that uh, we saw that the area of the brain that was previously offline the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that's associated with deliberative reasoning and self-reflection, that came back online. That came back online and it predicted the degree to which they were going to lower their own willingness to fight and die. So it shows you that despite the fact that they may be a little bit jarred and angry and upset that their community does not share their willingness, their, their level of commitment to sacrificing themselves for these values, they are nonetheless susceptible to that peer pressure. They will not necessarily change their the content of their values, but they will change their the behavioral commitment to the values. So you may not be able to use this peer pressure to actually change their ideology, but you maybe can lower their willingness to actually engage in violence on behalf of this ideology. Right. In terms of a social outcome, that would be a win. I mean, I find that encouraging. And in light of what you were saying earlier about what are the types of you know, the authority, sense of authority and benevolence being those two things that will, will, will communicate the message reliably. If you think about coupling, creating institutions or finding the right people in a community or the right messengers who will authentically give off a sense of benevolence and authority, and that peer message, it seems to me you, you do have a model for potentially effective de-radicalization, which is a, a problem that you know policymakers have been grappling with, you know, pretty unsuccessfully over the last decades. Yeah, it gives us some insights, at least into what we call disengagement. So, so disengagement is where you you no longer are active in the movement that you were previously a part of, but you don't necessarily give up the ideology from a security point of view. That's kind of good enough. Yeah, they're not willing to do anything violent. Um, they're not going to hurt anybody, and you know it's a free society. They can believe whatever they they want to believe. Uh, in the long run, you would hope that maybe some of them will actually give up some of the ideology, or at least move some of the values from the sacred column into the non-sacred column. That's very hard to do. It's pretty idiosyncratic, and um, and I would say from a policy point of view, if that's what you're aiming for, you're you're almost kind of uh, jumping the ship a little bit, you're, you're jumping a little, you're biting off more than you can chew, really, because you should just first be focusing on disengagement and then maybe de-radicalization. Right. And as we discussed earlier on, you need a, a probably a wider social, cultural and economic context where the 12, 13, 14 year old kids of first and second generation immigrants aren't being made to feel that they have literally no avenues for succeeding on the terms that the Western liberal democratic society is, is pretending to offer them. That's a very big policy ask. There isn't really a security issue. That's a kind of macro political social problem that is going to you know, be generations to, to, to resolve. Exactly. And there's, and the, there's a crucial thing about that second study about the peer influence being able to reduce people's willingness to engage in violence that connects back to the first study about social exclusion. This uh, intervention only works if they see that community as their peers, if they see them as being somehow, if they see themselves as being a member of that community that's telling them hey, don't engage in this violent behavior. If they don't see themselves as a member of that community, then that the, the, the norms of that community will have no impact on them. It's basically just another outgroup. And that's why it's so important to not break social ties with people who are part of extremist groups. I know people who, who got upset with family members 
not, I mean, we can talk about jihadism. I, I know people who got upset with family members because they voted for Donald Trump and they they defriended them on Facebook or unfollowed them on, on Twitter or Instagram and stopped talking to them and stopped taking their calls. Well, once you start breaking off those social ties, now your norms, your values, your influence has basically just been completely taken out of the picture. You're essentially just handing this person over on a platter to the extremist group, in which case the extremist group and other members of the extremist groups are going to be their only peers. And therefore, you would need the whole extremist group essentially to de-radicalize all at once in order for that individual person to be influenced by it, which obviously is, is not going to happen. Yeah. And presumably, you've also you've confirmed exactly a whole set of beliefs about your own status as, as a non-benevolent, non-authoritative figure because you believe all the wrong things and you know, you, you're, you're animating that polarization. I mean, I'm, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned Donald Trump. We're kind of out of time, but I was really struck. You know, we all followed the Trump Twitter stream from time to time and uh, either with horror or disgust or dismay uh, or you know, tried not to. But um, having looked at some of your research, I, I sort of I reread the Trump's tweet that you quote after the, the day after the storming of the Capitol, where he says, and I'm not going to do the accent here. He said, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly and unfairly treated for so long. So you've got sacred landslide victory, unceremoniously, so, you know, so without respect for something hallowed, viciously, so there's an element of violence, stripped away great patriots, the ultimate American virtue. I mean, everything in there, you know, that is consciously or unconsciously, you couldn't construct a more perfect example of how to animate your devoted actors and push them towards an even more radicalized, more violent form of behavior. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I saw that tweet, I just thought, has he has he been reading my research? This is this is perfect. You know, he's he's hitting all the right buttons. Yeah, you have a you have a threat um, by an outgroup, an antagonistic outgroup, um, a concocted threat in this case uh, towards a sacred value, democracy. Um, uh, and then a valorization of these patriotic, devoted actors who have been marginalized by the system, who are now going to rise up as a collective whole and to try to defend their sacred value against this antagonistic outgroup. It was, I thought it was just fantastic. It just fell into my lap, this quote, because it's perfectly, yeah, encaps. I mean, we've seen it with jihadists, with white nationalists, with other people. What's interesting, though, about the capital insurrectionists that's different than jihadists and, and other people is, sure, we know that there were white nationalists and some white supremacists who were among them. But I think it's wrong to actually categorize all of them as basically being neo-Nazis or something like that. I think a lot of them actually, unlike jihadists and unlike most white nationalists, they don't actually have different core sacred values than the mainstream society. Their core sacred value in this case was democracy. They just now believe in a false reality. I mean, they genuinely believe that there is a secret cabal in the United States that, that, that's an oligarchic deep state that actually at a bipartisan level from the city, state, county, federal level, changed the actual votes of the election in order to make Joe Biden the winner. They believe that there is no more democracy, that, that the United States has now fell under the control of some secret society. And therefore, any demo any elections are all just a ruse. So they actually share the sacred value. They just have a, a warped sense of threat, a, a whole false narrative of what's happening around that. In a sense, therefore, what you actually have is a, a sort of a two nations believing two different conceptions of what uh, what, what is actually happening in America. They both believe themselves to be equally attached to the right kind of patriotism and the right America. I'm not sure whether that I find that more or less encouraging in the sense that the, the, the possibility of reconstructing bridges between them is, is that a different conversation to the one about de-radicalization or, or is it still that question of, of uh, benevolence and authority that you need some messenger who will be able to somehow reach across from one group to the other so that people can start going across that bridge. 
So, well, let's let's use an analogy with 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 the climate change, for example. You have climate change deniers, and of course, you have people who who accept that climate change is happening and that it's that it's being exacerbated by by human activity. Now, if you ask the people who uh, accept that climate change is 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 being exacerbated by human activity, what is actually going on? What is global warming? you'll find that they are no more informed scientifically than the deniers. They'll start saying all sorts of weird things like uh, climate change is the result of the ozone layer, a hole in the ozone layer or something like that. The main difference is that they trust scientific institutions. That's all. They just they just trust that if the scientists have a consensus on this topic, then I believe that. So the people who deny it have very little trust in those institutions. So we can't expect everyone in society to be completely informed on every single issue. That's the reason why we have institutions to some degree that we can trust. That's why you turn to the media to tell you the truth about what's happening, to fact check things. That's why you have intelligence and police agencies to give out reports about who certain rioters were, what motivated them, who these terrorists were, and so forth. Uh, you you have to respect the judicial system or the or, or or government or scientific institutions. What's happening in society, I think, is not that our fundamental values are drifting away, but that there is a decay in trust towards social institutions. People don't trust mainstream media as much anymore. They don't trust government as much anymore. They don't even trust scientific institutions as much anymore. And there is a point at which we have to really start thinking about societal collapse as a very serious reality. If we don't know who to trust anymore, then it's basically information overload. Um, what Parkinson's disease is, is basically information overload. It's too much information coming from your peripheral nervous system, your body, into your motor cortex, and your body starts shaking and doesn't know what to do with it. I'm worried that actually at a societal level, there may be a sort of Parkinson's disease that we're reaching uh, because of the decay of social institutions, which is supposed to be moderating all this information, everything that's going on in the world, dissecting it, analyzing it, and then disseminating the output of what they think is going on. Once that's removed, now you have an information overload where you're actually asking people, you figure it out all on your own. You can't trust anybody. And it's in that wake, it's, it's, it's in that uncertainty, it's in that total lack of distrust in institutions that extremist groups can really start to flourish. Right. So you have a kind of degeneration of the institutional tissue that makes the sort of the, the body politic hold together and, and be dynamic and functional. Uh, and so to mix the metaphors of tunneled underneath the foundations of those institutions, you don't have a place where people who are operating in completely different information spheres and you know, deciding to construct their notion of truth from a, a, a completely isolated set of sources that the other group don't recognize, then you've legitimized more or less any worldview as potentially available. And that's how you get your self-esteem. And so the terrorist group, the, 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 the jihadis or, or the neo-Nazis, whoever it might be, are in a sort of slightly sinister way, reasonably operating in these sort of hypermarket of truth and ideas that will give them a sense of purpose and function. And there's, it's very hard to project or defend one overarching notion of truth and, and purpose. So there's you know, a, a sacred value that everyone can agree on, which is that we should all try and live peacefully in a civil democracy. And there's another player in all this too, which is the actual nation state malign influencers. Countries like Russia that are actively uh, engaging in misinformation and disinformation campaigns, largely geared towards dismantling trust in, in a variety of institutions. So while they are continuing to weaken that trust, it's then the local domestic extremist groups that can then exploit and take advantage of that diminishing distrust. We're kind of out of time, which is a shame because there's a whole, I feel there's a whole new podcast waiting to happen here. Um, I, I just need to ask at, at the very end, I mean, because we, we, I don't like to finish on such a gloomy note. I mean, it, it seems from your research, you are, are not too pessimistic, at least on the, on the sort of individual level that people can be walked back from the most extreme iteration of, of their commitment to a cause where they've crossed over into violence. At least they can, you can, neutralized to some extent uh, that commitment is that fair to say do you do you think that 
presumably you wouldn't be doing this research if you didn't think there was a way to, to walk these people back. Yeah, so I mean, I think rebuilding trust in social institutions is going to take a while. And part of that is for the institutions themselves to take a long, hard look at themselves and see have they done things to earn that distrust? Could the mainstream media be better? Could government be better? Could scientific institutions be better? And I think, of course, the answer is yes, they, they could be better. Um, so, so that's part of the problem. And the other part of the problem is obviously to educate people more on how these institutions work. The less you know about how they actually work and the decision-making process that goes on within these institutions, the more susceptible you are to a conspiracy narrative about what's going on behind the scenes. But while we're doing that, that's going to be a long-term process. Basically, we can no longer trust in the institutions to be the glue of society. We as individual people need to be the glue of society. We need to now step in while we're rebuilding these foundations. We have to be the scaffolding at this point. And that basically means don't stop talking to your uncle or auntie or your friend from college or whatever who now starts to believe in anti-vaccination conspiracy theories or supports QAnon or believes in jihadist ideology or whatever. It's now become your responsibility to maintain that social tie with that person. And that means don't argue with them in, in the public comment sections on their Facebook posts or, or Twitter, because that's just going to publicly humiliate them and force them to have to be antagonistic towards you. Try to engage one-on-one -on -one with them. If you can do it over DM, fine. If you can get them over Zoom or Skype and actually see each other and hear each other's voice, that's even better. If there's some way you can see each other in person, you now have to be the credible messenger for that person. It's not going to be the BBC or CNN or, or whatever. You have to be the credible messenger. You have to become the bridge that that person has into mainstream society. So I think now more than ever, the power is in all of us to maintain a sense of social cohesion while in the long run, we try to engage in the efforts to rebuild trust in institutions. Well, Nafis, you've been a brilliant messenger for some really complicated and, and fascinating ideas. Uh, and I hugely appreciate it. And as part of that process, I really hope as many people share this podcast as possible, because I think it just contains so much insight and useful information. You've been a brilliant guest. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here.